0: Obourne and Heller on cricket brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar
1: Hello it's Peter Obourne here in Wiltshire
2: Hello it's Richard Heller in Lord Emsworth country in Shropshire
1: Good Lord. Any pigs you've been seeing today, Richard? Um, not today, not oh. yet,
2: but they kept me awake all night. They were worse than the foxes in London. Anyway, I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed uh, in spite of the pigs, and I'm delighted that we're welcoming today's guest, Neil Robinson. Uh, Neil is the MCC's Head of Heritage and Collections at Lords, which is one of the largest sporting collections in the world. He's a great authority himself on the history and the literature of the game, uh, he's the author of uh, a int- very interesting book on um, cricket called Long Shot Summer, on uh, the annus horribilis for English Test cricket in 1988. Latterly, he's also written several th- thrillers. We'll talk about them later. He's um, gave both of us immense support uh, in our own writing about cricket uh, when he was earlier uh, head of the library and research division at Lords. Uh, and he's also helped many many other cricket historians and writers. Neil very much um, looking forward to talking to you thank you so much for being with us and um, welcome. Thank you
0: Richard good morning to you and good morning to Peter as well and good morning to everyone listening uh, it's a pleasure to be here today.
2: Neil's um, uh, mentioned a moment ago uh, before um, your present position you were I think head of the library and research I think it was the formal title mm-hmm. in at Lords you've had a Long association with Lords. Tell us um, how you first came to join them.
0: Well, I've, I've been uh, full time at Lords now for almost 15 years, um, and it really came about uh, due to a career change. Uh, my first job after university was in the Home Office, but after six years of that, I thought it was time for a change. I went away, did some travelling, did some thinking, and in the end, decided that a career as a librarian would be something I'd enjoy. So I went up to Aberdeen to Robert Gordon University, did a postgraduate qualification there. And as part of that, I had to spend one month at a library or information service of my choice. And the placement office gave us a form to fill in with with five slots that they would then chase up and see which of them, uh, which particular library would accept us for a work placement. And I I thought I could afford to throw away one on an impossible dream. So I put the MCC Library at Lords as my number one choice and then I filled in the other four spaces with some things I I thought were probably more realistic. But uh, I was very lucky at the time, and this is early 2004, Adam Chadwick, uh, my predecessor in my current role, had just taken over as Curator of Collections, as the title was, um, from Stephen Green, who'd been there for 25 years. And uh, Adam came from a fine art background, he'd been in the auction business at Christie's, he didn't know much about the library. Um, he knew it was a, a sort of underappreciated gem within the collections, and he was more than happy to have uh, a semi-trained librarian come in and, and take a first view. So I spent a, a month at Lord's in the, uh, the early part of the 2004 season. Uh, obviously, made some contacts, and they must have been impressed because a couple of years later, when a permanent job came up within the collections, I'd got a couple of years under my belt in public libraries by that time, and the the possibility of coming to work permanently at Lord's started then so I began at the the bottom of the pile as collections assistant and I've gradually worked my way up until um, just over a year ago I was appointed head of collections head of heritage and collections.
1: I must say that Richard and I I mean we've both been so grateful and along with so many countless others for the work which you and your fellow librarians uh, at Lord's Dunn are making in, enabling us to research books mm. and articles, and so on behalf of every cricket writer in the world, thank you very much indeed. Tell us a little bit about how the th- this collection, one of the greatest in the world, got going. When did uh, how far back does it go? The Lord's Library, as it were, and the Lord's Archive as well.
0: Well, the the origin of the collections really goes back to. When James Dark left Lords, he was effectively, he was the leaseholder of the ground, up until the point where MCC effectively bought out the freehold and became fully in control uh, of Lords. When Dark surrendered his control of the ground to MCC... Uh, Which year was this? This was 186, uh, 1864.
1: Just before the, re- the reform of the Corn Laws. yeah.
0: Yes. He, he left some... A, a small number of pictures, two or three, to the club. And, and those were the first pictures that the club ever owned. But it was really in the 1860s, uh, 1864 we we take as being the real start of it, when Spencer mm-hmm. Ponsonby Fane began to actively collect. Um, at the time, it was really to decorate the pavilion, but uh, he made a serious effort to collect together fine works of cricketing art in order to have a, a space that members could really enjoy and feel it was a special place inside the pavilion, as well as what was whatever was going on outside at the time. And so Spencer carried this on until the end of his life, really. Um, and the, he produced the first catalogue of the collections in 1902. And, and that's really our first detailed knowledge of, of what the collections um, held during the Victorian period. And uh, it's still the original basis of the collections to this day. Although, obviously, we've, we've grown a lot in the, the intervening hundred years or so.
2: We must have done one. Very roughly, how many, or perhaps even precisely, how many items are there in, in the collections? That's, that's a really, really difficult question to
0: answer, particularly when you consider the archive, because do you take it by individual document or by the f- number of files that those documents are in or the number of boxes that those files are in? It's, it's really an impossible question to answer. I can tell you that the library has something around 22,000 books, but um, even there... Then you look at something like the Cricketer Magazine. Do you, do you count every single issue of the Cricketer Magazine as an individual part of that number, or do you just take the title overall? It's, it's difficult to say, but we, we have, by anyone's estimation, probably the largest collection of cricket material anywhere in the world, easily into the, the hundreds of thousands of items if you consider photographs, for example. Even just the, we have an actively collecting digital photo library these days, Photos are taken at MCC out matches at a lot of MCC events, and we've been doing that since about 2003 2004. And it's it numbers hundreds of thousands of images now. So if you include those as part of the collection as well, then it's a staggering number of items. Hmm.
2: What about the number of works of art and artifacts and, um, well, physical objects? Have you got a rough count of them?
0: <sighs> physical objects, I, I would say we've probably got something like four or five thousand. If, uh, and that be anything from uh, a, a full-size painting down to a small illustration, down to a, a piece of ceramic or something like a cricket ball or a cricket bat or a glove or a
1: pad. Indeed. And, uh, and Jahangir Khan's Sparrow, which met its untimely end at Lord's in, was it 1936?
0: 1936, yes. We discovered only this year that, in fact, it was a young, youngish adult male. Um, that's because it, it's gone off to the Natural History Museum for a, a little bit of uh, TLC. Um, as with most stuffed animals, eventually it begins to show its wear. And and there are there are also certain chemicals that have historically been used in taxidermy that can leak and can be slightly toxic. So we needed to have that analysed as well. So it, it went off to uh, the Natural History Museum just before... He...
1: He went off. He went off, yes.
0: yes. I must get into the habit of saying that. We've, we've respected its gender privacy for so many years and referred to it as a neutral, but now we can say he. Um, yes, he was killed um, in 1936, flying across the pitch um, in the middle of a, a Cambridge University versus MCC match at Lord's. And it was he, it was, killed, he was killed instantly, and for some strange reason, MCC decided to, to mark the occasion by having him stuffed and mounted on top of the ball that killed him. It's one of the more macabre items in our collection, but it does always draw a crowd, particularly amongst the younger viewers who like the story behind it.
1: Jehangir Khan was the most uh, amazing figure altogether. The first time he picked up a javelin, he, did he throw the world record javelin throw? I mean, he, he carried out a number of... And he came from a family of renowned wrestlers. Mm. Uh, who had been champions in the of Pakistan in the 19th century, or what? Sorry, I say Pakistan champions of the Punjab in the mm-hmm. 19th century, and um, so he was a phenomenal figure, and of course, father of the great Majid, mm-hmm. grandfather, uncle, uncle. But
2: grandfather of Bajid, yes, one of the families that produced three generations of test cricketers. Mm. That remarkable story. Mm. Going back to the photographs, what's what's the oldest one in the that you know of in the in the collection? When was when was it taken? Uh, the oldest one we can definitely cite the age of. Um, in
0: fact, we have a pair of them. We've got a pair of photographs taken of the famous 1859 touring team um, that went out to North America, Canada, and the United States. The first ever overseas tour by a cricket team, and. We've got one taken on board ship um, probably in Liverpool before they set sail. Um, that's quite a, a well-known one, and a lesser known photograph um, taken in a, a photographic studio in Canada after the team arrived. There are some others that um, we've got some rather nice images of lords, non-cricketing images, which we can't precisely date, but they they must at least be In one case, it has to be before 1868 because it shows the original public house on the perimeter of the ground on St. John's Wood Road before the the famous Lord's Hotel, better known as the Tavern, was built in 1868. So that has to be before that date. And there's another one which um, still shows, just lurking in a corner, the sheep which were used to keep the grass short on the main playing area. Um, And that obviously predates Um, the introduction of the lawnmower, which happened around 1864, 1865. So they they may be a little earlier than that. They may be earlier than the 1859 image. We can't be certain, but they're certainly very, very old and the earliest photographs we have of lawns.
1: Do you have uh, archival records of that 1859 tour of the United States?
0: We don't, actually, because it it wasn't an MCC tour. MCC only took over um, organising overseas tours in 1903. And from that point on until 1968, coincidentally enough, um, they they were responsible for all official overseas England tours. But all of the early tours in the 19th century were were privately financed initiatives. They were often money-making schemes. Um, in fact, the first England team to go out to Australia in 1861, that was very much an entrepreneurial exercise, and it was a last-minute replacement, really, for a lecture tour by Charles Dickens, who had pulled out.
1: No, so, I had I know, no idea of that. Oh, yeah. The, um,
0: the organisers, who uh, uh, they, they were entrepreneurs in Melbourne, Messrs. Spears and Pond. They rapidly got together an England cricket team as as a replacement for, for Dickens' tour. And it was a great success, as uh, many, many subsequent sh- uh, tours have shown.
1: Why did Dickens pull out? Do you know this? Do you know the answer? I,
0: I don't know, I'm afraid. Um, he was a cricket fan,
2: so maybe, maybe he thought a cricket tour would be more appropriate in his place. I think he was put off by the long journey. as much Quite as possibly. Else. You know, and that, that means a lot of time at sea when he, mm. you know, it's...
1: He could knock off another three-volume novel. He could
0: well have done. <laughs> in fact, I didn't, didn't Trollope actually write a novel on a, on a boat to Australia at one point in the... Victorian period. I can't remember which one, but I do believe he, he wrote a couple of novels, Anthony Trollope set, set in Australia, and I, I believe mm-hmm. one of them he actually wrote... During the voyage out to Australia,
1: he was he would have probably been going out there to negotiate one of his famous postal treaties, wouldn't he? Because that's what he did. He yes, had his yes. day yes. job. Yeah. He was working for the post office. in Nigan and it. he went he went across the states as well, didn't he, to Nigan and to Egypt. Uh, and so he is. He, he, I can well imagine he went off to Australia and then took advantage of the long journey to to write several novels in the case of Trollope. He used to write three or four a year. But he wrote 5,000
2: words a day, even when, he, even when he was running the post office. He got up early in the morning, um, he was, he ran, ran the post office, left us the red pillar box.
1: Yeah, he was more of a hunting man than a, a cricketer, I think, in the case of Trollope.
0: He, he did like cricket, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't in the habit of writing about it in the same way as he was in the habit of writing about hunting.
1: Whereas D- D- Dickens does have quite a lot of cricket, doesn't he, in his uh, novels?
0: Notably in Pickwick Papers, yes. The very famous match between Dingley Dell and someone else—I can't remember.
2: Doesn't describe it terribly well. <laughs> that match—it's um, a long yeah. time since I've read that. Yeah, doesn't describe. You've no idea what's going on in the match at all. <laughs> doesn't give the. It is very. He'd never get a job as a cricket reporter. He doesn't give the score. He doesn't give any. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's give lucky any, he had, had some just, other strings to his bow. Just as just as well for him. Yeah. Mm. yeah.
0: But going back to photographs, if, if you'll allow me to digress a moment, one of the, the earliest photographs, in fact, it's another pair, there's, there's a terrific story behind that. We've got um, a pair of photographs of the teams who played the first ever recorded match in Japan in Yokohama in 1863. And the match there took place in very unusual circumstances. Um, there'd, there'd been a lot of tension uh, at the time around the trading post in Yokohama, which mm. was the only point of Western settlement in Japan. A British trader had been murdered um, on the outskirts of town a a few weeks earlier, and the local shogun had actually ordered all foreigners to leave the country, and if after a certain date they were still here, he wouldn't guarantee their safety. So there was an expectation of huge violence against European traders in Yokohama, and on, on the day that guarantee of safety ran out, a lot of the Japanese actually left Yokohama in anticipation of the violence that would follow. So the British traders were left with no business to conduct. So they decided to play a game of cricket instead. And there was a a Navy team, there there was a naval vessel there, which was supposed to be protecting the British traders. And the shore team came up against them. And this was on the 25th of June, 1863. And a lot of the the players actually took arms out onto the, the field of play, as well as bats and balls, because they were expecting at any point, the locals may come at them with samurai swords. Um, but luckily, that didn't happen. There was no violence on the day. Um, as far as we know, the naval team won. And that was the end of the, the first match of cricket ever played in Japan, which we're lucky enough to have a photographic record of. That's
1: That's punishing fascinating.
2: Um, they didn't manage to convert the Japanese to cricket, uh, did uh, they? Well, not, a not, not at scale. the time. It's, no.
0: it's been a long, old road, but there is some cricket played in Japan now. In fact, Japan have played at Lord's. They played a game on the nursery ground a couple of years ago. We have had some cricketing links with them in in recent years. That's very good.
2: I mean, there's so many more countries playing international cricket now. And are they all represented in the collections in some way? I just wondered if Afghanistan has got any materials in the representative materials in the collection now that they've been? Well,
0: Afghanistan's a good example because they've really risen from nowhere in recent years to to now being a test nation. Um, And we don't have very much at the moment. All we have in the collection relating to Afghanistan is a single shirt from their very first tour of the UK in 2006. But we've we've definitely made um, positive efforts in recent years to try and broaden the geographical scope of the collection. We recognise that we, you know, although the MCC Museum is at Lords in London, we have a global audience. Um, people come from all over the world to to come and see the museum, not just on on match days. You know, in Ashes Test Match, we'll have lots of Australian visitors over to watch the cricket and they'll come into the museum as well. But people come all year round on the Lord's Tour as well, and we get a lot of visitors from India, um, from other countries, even from France, the Netherlands, the United States, not countries you would naturally think of as major cricket playing nations, but we, we have people coming from all over the world to, to see our collection. And I'm quite sure they don't want to just see items related to England and Australia. They want to see items relating to the history of cricket in their own countries as well. And we've we've tried to reflect that in the way we collect and in the exhibitions we put on. And uh, both of you were kind enough to help us a few years ago with a, an exhibition we put together on, on Pakistan cricket. Nice.
1: It was a great honour for us, by it the way. And, and it it's worked very well.
0: There were two real, real aims of that. One was to tell some of the fascinating stories behind the history of cricket in Pakistan, but also to highlight that Historically, we haven't had very much in our collection relating to Pakistan and we we really wanted to to be honest about that and say, look, we want to collect more. So if you have material relating to to Pakistan in your own collections, come to us and we'd be delighted to try and take it off your hands and add it to our collections. We want to build our collections in these areas, whether it be match gear like bats and balls and caps or other items of, of memorabilia associated with the culture of the game.
1: We need to introduce you to our mutual friend, Mr. Najam Latif in Lahore, who's the founder of the Lahore Gymkhana Cricket Museum, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a wonderful thing to go. Have you have you been to Lahore? You sh- you need to go there as I've the, never uh,
0: never had the pleasure of being to Pakistan. I would love to go, and I hope that one day I'll have the opportunity. Yeah,
1: I'm sure, yeah, he because will. He's done a lot of work uh, in. It's very valuable. This because you know, as time passes, the the founders of the game in in Pakistan, for instance they die. And until you've got records of them, I think one of the things that Najam has been doing is starting to interview them to get their memories before they pass away. That's the heroic early test match team of Pakistan. And of course, the same applies to so many other countries.
0: Well, that's true. Um, We have an audio archive at Lords as well. And that started in 2003, really, it was the the brainchild of the the writer and broadcaster David Raven-Allen. And he conducted a lot of the early interviews himself. And the the driving idea behind it was that we should capture the voices and the memories of a generation of cricketers who were passing out of this life before that happened. Um, and we've, we've got a, a, over 200 interviews now, something like 230, with former players, administrators, journalists, umpires. And it's, it's a growing resource. And we, we'd like to try and grow it in line with our plans for exhibitions so that when when we tell a story, we don't just tell it through the objects that are on display. We tell it through the voices of the people who were associated mm. with those objects as well, and ideally through video also. So collecting oral history is, is a great way, not just of providing material for research purposes, but also it assists you in... What you can do with exhibitions both within a museum and of course online because every museum particularly with what we've been going through in recent months every museum now recognizes that you need to engage with an audience in the online sphere as well that's how you drive future visitation and it's also how you engage with your audiences in the present day
1: what's the earliest oral testimony which you have
0: that's a very good question and i'm not sure i i actually know the answer to that one um in our own collection i i don't think we go back terribly early to be quite you honest you don't
1: have uh wg or uh Wood. there must be there's a voice one of the first crop of Jessup, would you get Jessup? would you get
0: trumper if, if we could get an original uh, original voice recording of, of someone like trumper or Jessup, we would leap at the chance obviously I, i'm quite sure we don't have anything like that. We do have some early vinyl records. Um, Don Bradman playing the piano, for example. It's a very accomplished <laughs> um, one. But that's not quite the same thing. Hmm. And I I couldn't honestly tell you what the earliest voice recording we have is. Um, I suspect it might be one of the items that we acquired from the collection of interviews from some of our interviewers who worked on the audio archive, people like the like late Ralph Deller, who conducted interviews co- Were commissioned by us, but also supplied us with recordings of some of the interviews he carried out earlier in his career.
1: Tell us about that. I I don't know the name Ralph Deller actually. So tell us about
0: Ralph. Ralph Deller was um, he was a radio correspondent for many years. Um, You'd hear him cropping up giving match reports on BBC Radio during Test matches. I think he did. He did a variety of sports. I think he did football as well. He did. Um, But he also wrote a little bit in newspapers so he he was an all-round cricket reporter both in the, in the radio sphere and in uh, in print journalism so he he knew quite a lot of the players quite well and
1: who did he which generation did he interview
0: um 60s, 70s some 80s mm. um, which is really where we start i think we go back to in the audio archive we really start from the 1950s onwards nothing much earlier than that
2: we were we were talking some weeks ago to to pat murphy who compiled the memoirs of tiger smith Mm-hmm. The um, former wicketkeeper and um, Warwickshire player. And um, his book, uh, I mean, Tiger Smith played with W.G. Grace. And at the end of his life, he um, gave advice to Mike Brearley and Jeff Boycott. You know, it's a huge span of cricket in, in that one life.
0: I wonder whether they took his advice.
2: Huh. I'm sure they didn't forget it. He was a very, <laughs> very, very forthright man, Tiger Smith. And he... He certainly mentored a lot of um, a lot of great cricketers. He was Dennis Amis yes. very
1: much the young Amos who emerging in Warwickshire in the uh, was it the late fifties early sixties. He was mentored by Tiger, uh, and Pat Murphy said in his description that that Michael Brearley listened very attentively and very respectfully as he was he was then the England cricket captain uh, mm-hmm. as he was given some quite strong advice by <laughs> Tiger Smith. Yeah. Um,
2: Neil, the collections include a um, great number of cricket portraits. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the precise number is, but um, would you like to pick out some of the portraits that it, that it does hold? And are there any sort of significant gaps which it's looking to fill? Anybody missed out for some reason?
0: I think probably our, our most famous portrait, and it's important to state that we do still commission. Um, it's It's an ongoing programme that we have to commissioned portraits of, of some of the greatest cricketers of recent years. Um, probably the most famous one, the most successful one, was Brendan Kelly's portrait of Sir Vivian Richards, which is a huge canvas that dominates whatever wall it is on. It's often been hung just at the top of the stairs as you come into the, the pavilion at Lords, and it creates quite an impression when, when you put it there. It's, it's the first thing that catches your eye when you walk into the pavilion and it's, it's a hugely impressive piece of artwork, which really conveys what it must have been like to confront Viv from 22 yards away with a ball in your hand. Normally, you think of batsmen being intimidated by bowlers, but um, in some cases, bowlers can be intimidated by batsmen, and he was certainly one such. Um, one of my other favourites is is Phil Hale's portrait of Matthias moore which actually captures him in the act of releasing the ball.
1: It's a beautiful portrait, yeah.
0: It is, and it's it's got such movement in it. Yeah, and it yeah. really captures the physicality of Muralitharan's action. And it's it's very difficult to do that to, to capture in a in a single instance the the whole sense of movement that you get in a bowler's action and I think Phil Hale pulled it off quite beautifully in that.
2: Made might have been even more difficult conveying Muralitharan's action which was well quite you know complex and beautiful in one movement than others those are obviously two overseas cricketers Um, I think it's
0: fair to say that historically the balance of the collection has been weighted very heavily in favor of English cricketers Um, but as I said a a few moments ago we we do recognize that we need to broaden the scope of the collections and we've made very positive efforts to do that Um, we've got Pakistan cricketers like Inzamam al-Hak, that was another Brendan Kelly portrait, very similar in style, but obviously the effect is very different because Inzamam is a very different character. Um, we, we did an Indian triptych, uh, Stuart Wright-Pearson um, painted uh, Bishan Bedi, Kapil Dev and Dilipbeng Sarkar together. Um, that's a very effective series of paintings. And recently uh, there were a couple of Mahala Jaya Wardener and MCC's uh, current president, Kumar Sankhara also done at the same time so we're, we're very definitely trying to reflect a more global side to our collection there are still gaps I don't think we have apart from one of Ali Bakker we don't have a single individual portrait of a South African cricketer and when you consider the likes of Graham Pollock, Jack Callis, um, fine cricketers like they've produced um, that's well, that's certainly yeah. a gap
1: I think we need a, picture, a portrait of Amla at some point that beard needs to be on the mcc wall but just moving on a little bit i imagine that there's a major let's have the two very contemporary themes which I've, i'm sure the mcc is thinking about that's starting first of all with how many women cricketers are there among the the portraits on the walls at, at, at lords
0: at the moment um we have rachel hayhoe flint and claire taylor who was the first woman cricketer to be one of Wisden's five cricketers of the year. Um, Rachel Hayhoe Flint, of course, had a huge influence in getting women uh, to be members Absolutely. of MCC back in the 1990s. Um, she was one of the the, the first to be granted honorary Life membership and later became the first woman to sit on the MCC committee, so entirely appropriate to, that she should be acknowledged in our portrait programme. Um, Claire Taylor, obviously, her... Contribution to cricket on the field is immense, and she's the current chair, chairman of the um, MCC Cricket Committee, so she also has a role within the club. But I, th- I think we have to go further in future years in acknowledging the the growing prominence of women's cricket and the growing popularity of that game. Um, a lot of people watch it now, and a lot of people who perhaps their first experience of it was the World Cup final at Lords a couple of years ago when England defeated India in a really thrilling match. Um, a lot of people that day probably realised that they weren't watching you know, just a game of women's cricket, they were watching a great game of cricket that happened to be played by women. And I think that's really done a lot for the the profile of the women's game, and obviously professionalism has come in as well through the ECB, and women's cricket is, is now you know, right up there in terms of its significance as a major sport. And it's only fair that we begin to reflect that in the collections, too. And that's one of our major collecting priorities in the years to come.
1: And I guess that in the light of recent cultural concerns raised by Black Lives Matter, you will you have been looking at the collections uh, to check for connections with slavery, other forms of oppression? That's, that's
0: certainly another priority going forward. Um, the department is all on furlough at the moment. Um, But when that concludes, presumably in the autumn, um, it will be one of our priorities to examine the collection for any connections with the the interesting questions raised by the Black Lives Matter movement. And I imagine we'll be producing a review and a document along those lines. Moving slightly beyond Black Lives Matter, it raises plenty of interesting questions. And we hear a lot these days about the decolonization of of curricula, of, of collections, And looking at it from cricket's point of view, I I think it would be very difficult to decolonize cricket because its global spread is essentially a direct result of imperial design. But what you can do is make sure you you tell cricket's stories in a way that reflects the diversity of voices within cricket and the the diversity of of, of spread of the game. Um, And that's one of the reasons we are trying to extend the scope of the collections to reflect the, the global nature of cricket today.
2: You know, just to say, in fairness to Britain's real tennis players, that Lords is, it's often forgotten, Lords is also the home of real tennis as well as cricket. And um, Mm -hmm. I just wondered how much is real tennis represented in the the collections and the library? We have. um, I think
0: in the library we are particularly well represented for real tennis. In fact, um, the oldest book in the library collection is a tennis book. It's um, published in 1555 in Florence, its English title is uh, A Treatise on Tennis and it's by uh, a chap called Antonio Scaino da Salo and we've, we've got a lovely copy of that um, bound in a sort of honey-coloured calf leather. It, it's a beautiful item. We've recently had it restored. It's, it's one of our prize items really within the collection. And We have most of the, the most important tennis books. Um, I don't think there's too much on our, our wanted list as far as the, the books go. We've got a fair selection of memorabilia within the museum collection as well and obviously the archive fully reflects the the tennis tennis and rackets subcommittee as it originally was um, a couple of items we we've got a, a very nice portrait again uh, of the recent world champion Rob Faye um, Australian who dominated the the game of real tennis for a couple of decades much in the same way that Roger Fed, Federer dominated lawn tennis for so long. Um, but one of my favourite tennis items is actually the old tennis kit bag of the actor Sir Ralph Richardson, who lived in a, a house on the northern edge of Hampstead Heath and used to come to Lords quite regularly to play real tennis. We actually have that on display in reception
2: at Lords at the moment. Now, going uh, within the collections, do you get any demands for items to be repatriated, as with the, you know, as with the Elgin Marbles? Not, nothing
0: exactly like that, Richard. There, is, there have obviously been discussions um, in Australia in, in recent years about the status of the Ashes Urn. Um, Indeed. There was a that period when Australia won the Ashes series for the best part of 20 years. Um, every series they won quite convincingly. And with the perception being in the public that they were playing for the Ashes, the Ashes Urn, um, there was naturally some confusion over there as to why the urn never travelled out to Australia after Australia had won the series, Um, which was why in 2006, 2007, uh, we decided to take the urn out on a a major exhibition tour and try and tell the story of the origin of the urn and, and what it really represents. And earlier than that, we'd actually commissioned a new trophy for the series. The, the Ashes series had never had a trophy um, at all until um, the Waterford Crystal MCC official Ashes trophy was, was um, created in the late 1990s and first presented to Mark Taylor after the 98-99 season series in Australia. Um, but that still didn't loosen that impression in Australia that they were playing for the urn. So we we took the urn out to Australia for th- a 13-week tour of all the state capitals, and we told the story of, of how it had been presented after a social match, how it was a, a private gift to the Honourable Ivo Bly, how it was really all a joke and more associated with a love story than anything else. And it got, it got a huge reception.
1: Now, maybe there's somebody listening who doesn't know the origins. When it, what, what happened was that England got, got defeated, wasn't it, at the Oval by the Australians?
0: That's right. Um, September 1882.
1: Yeah, get, get, just tell the actual story of what what happened.
0: Um, this may take some time, I should warn you. But uh, The potted version, September 1882, England lost a home test match to Australia for the very first time. It shouldn't have been a, a great surprise, really, because Australia had won the very first test match out in Melbourne and you know, they, they'd quite often won against England on their own turf. But it was the first time it had happened in England and the press had a field day and there was a great wailing and gnashing of teeth. And in, in response to this uh, national mood, a, a journalist decided to place a spoof obituary in the Sporting Times magazine, which declared the death of English cricket and that the body would be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. This was partly a joke relating to England's defeat, but also it was an, uh, a note to the ongoing debate at the time about legalising cremation, which was still an illegal practice. Um, in England at the time. So there was a political aspect to it as well, um, as well as it being a joke. But it was a joke that both sides bought into, and there was an England side going out to Australia that following winter, led by the Honourable Ivo Bly. He said that his team was going out there to regain the ashes, meaning the honour of English cricket. There were no physical ashes at the time. And the Australian captain, Captain Billy Murdoch, made a similar claim that his team would fight to retain the ashes. So the stage was set. But before the test series even started, there were three test matches scheduled. Um, Ivo and the amateurs from his team visited Rupert's Wood House outside Sunbury in Victoria, which was the home of uh, Sir William and Lady Janet Clarke. Sir William was the president of, of the Melbourne Cricket Club, the equivalent MCC to ours in England. So he was effectively their social host while they were in Melbourne. And on Christmas Eve, as part of the Christmas celebrations, Ivo's team played a scratch match against the estate workers Um, which his team naturally won. In response to that, Lady Janet decided that they should receive some sort of reward for their victory. They had regained the honour of English cricket and should be rewarded as such. She took what we think is probably a little perfume bottle or ointment jar from her uh, bedside table. Uh, A a bale was burnt from the wickets that were used in the match and the ashes were placed inside the urn and it was presented to Ivo. Um, And the reason he kept that, he probably received many such gifts during his time in Australia but the reason he kept this particular one wasn't really its association with the idea of the ashes it was the fact that at that visit to Rupert's Wood House he had met the governess and music teacher to the, the Clark family's children a lady called Florence Rose Morphy who he fell in love with and she later became his wife and when he inherited the earldom of Darnley she became his countess. So it was an item that reminded them of the start of their love affair so when people talk about the ashes urn being some point of conflict between england and australia i I tell them they should really think of it as something that brings us together because in its origin it's a story of love between an english aristocrat and an ordinary aussie girl and so it should never be something that divides us
1: you've told that story quite beautifully
2: absolutely ideal for a television miniseries (laughs) it would be it would be somebody should pick up on that yeah. Neil, I can't resist saying that if you go to the London Library, as, you, as I'm sure you know, has a very idiosyncratic cataloguing system. And books on cricket are next door to books on cremation. So it's the perfect place to borrow a book on the ashes.
0: That's, I had no idea of that. That's a wonderful connection.
1: <laughs> but that, just to follow this up, so the urn is actually a perfume jar, you we, think? That's
0: what we think. Um, like a lot of things relating to the ashes urn, there is much speculation and there is no absolute proof so we don't really know what its history was before it was presented to Ivo Bly Um, but the likeliest story looking at its size um, and thinking what it might have been used for and the fact that it was presented by Lady Janet rather than by her husband lends itself to the idea that it was a a, some sort of cosmetic
1: and have we tested the actual ashes to be clear that
0: no we haven't we had um we did have an x-ray done as part of the condition reporting before it went out to Australia on that first tour in 2006. And what that revealed is there is a deposit of something in the bottom, but we haven't had it tested, partly because to do that, we'd have to take the cork out. The cork is sealed in, so it might actually damage it and mm. we might not be able to replace it. And the other thing is there's so much, so much to be gained from having a mystery around <laughs> what's inside what would be the point in destroying that mystery? Um, it would only harm the legend, and sometimes it's just better not to know. So we can have these conversations about what might be inside and what might not
1: be inside. But the next thing, who who was it who was entrusted with this? I mean, this the Crown Jewels, basically. Who, who was given the Crown Jewels to take them to Australia? I mean, well, terrifying. Um, on that particular...
0: 13-week tour. It was my predecessor, Adam Chadwick, and his assistant, Glenis Williams, who probably knows still today more about the Ashes Inn than anyone alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were responsible for its its care and security while they were in Australia. I subsequently had the opportunity of taking it to Australia myself um, a few months ago when it was back in Melbourne for a, a non-cricket-related exhibition called Velvet Iron Ashes, which was really telling the story of, of the history of the state of Victoria and the Ashes Zone is one of the the great stories within the early history of that state and it's linked to all sorts of other strange objects such as a suit of Ned Kelly's armor so we took it out there for a, a, a two-month um, exhibition in Australia and, and I had the pleasure of flying with it in a box next to me in business class on Qantas which was quite an experience. Um, you're carrying this, uh, this, this huge metal case it's the, the sort of case that photographers take into war zones for their equipment to be protected. So no, I It's do, pretty yes. much bomb-proof. And it's sitting on its own inside the uh, the business, in its own business class seat next to me. And nobody asked me what was in it. Not one person asked me what, what the hell's in the case. <laughs> um, and I, I later heard when we had um, we had an art courier helping me to, to get it on board and, and strap it in and make sure it was securely strapped in, He's a professional people. He, he he took me all the way from Lords onto the plane at Heathrow. And when he'd left me on the plane, because I, I got priority boarding, obviously, left me on the plane, went back out, and the crew who were waiting outside asked him, is he going to be all right? Is he upset? They'd heard I was carrying some ashes to us, <laughs> and they thought it was the ashes of his <laughs> close <For relevant. reason. laughs> Which just shows you how good security was on that, that particular trip.
2: How did, uh, did you have to declare them at customs?
0: Yes. Yes, I did. And they they did open the case up to have a look, which I think was more out of curiosity and the opportunity of (laughs) saying that they'd seen it in person than for any real security concerns. But um, yes, we had to open it up for customs on the way out to make sure it was exactly what it was. And we had to open it up on the the way back as well, the way into Australia.
1: I know this is above your pay grade, but I think, why doesn't, why don't the ashes when Australia hold the ashes why can't they they be in australia i've always baffled me that
0: um there are two principal reasons one it's very very delicate and regular travel it would not do it any good um so that's one reason we don't want to destroy the most precious artifact in cricket purely for the sake of, of having it associated with this particular test series secondly it's never been a trophy um The Ashes series, the idea of the ashes disappeared for 20 years after Ivo Bly was presented with the urn. No one mentioned it, apart from Clarence Moody, one particular Australian journalist who mentioned it three or four times in in his articles, the idea of the ashes. And then it really started in 1903-04 when Palom team went out to Australia and won the test series over there. And he wrote a book called How We Recovered the Ashes. And that regenerated the idea from scratch, pretty much. And we're not quite sure why he decided to call his book that, but it is notable that on the boat out to Australia, one of the team's fellow passengers um, was Lady Darnley, the former Florence Rose Morphy. So it's highly likely that on that journey, Pelham Warner got talking to Lady Darnley and heard the story of the Ashes Urn. And from that point on, he decided to, to reignite this, this great legend. But even then... There was no association with the Ashes Urn. People talked about the Ashes, they they spoke about Ashes series. England and Australia fought bitterly on the field of play to win the Ashes but there was no sign of the Urn. The Urn did not appear in public until the end of the 1920s. It was first um, exhibited around the country shortly before Lord Darnley's death during the 1926 test series. That was um, I think a tour sponsored by the Daily Mail at the time and then after Ivo, Ivo died in 1927, Lady Darnley donated it to Lords, where it was initially put on display in the pavilion and later on in the, uh, the MCC museum after it opened in 1953 um, and it was put on public display then. But even after that, even right up until the 1980s when you see artwork relating to the ashes, it doesn't always show this urn, it doesn't always show the Darnley urn, there are various other representations and there have been other urns that have been created to represent the ashes over those many decades so it, it's really just a an association of ideas that has grown up in in the last 50 years or so that, that has linked this particular urn with the ashes series so closely but it's never been a trophy it was never intended as a trophy and it could never be a trophy
2: purely for that conservation reason interesting mm-hmm. Um Neil, the, the... MCC Library, I think it has, I think you said 20,000 cricket related titles already. Yes. Not counting the sort of multiple issues of magazines and journals and that kind of thing. And I, th- I think 400 new titles every year added to it. Um, about to get a new title from me. Um, can, I just t- can I just mention that title? It's, um, <laughs> it's by all means. Prisoner,
1: The Prisoner of Rubato Towers. And
2: it's about the impact of a cricketless summer.
1: But um, I recommend it very highly. I trace, high. I trace the influence of Ronald Furbank and Christopher Isherwood, perhaps. Oh. Oh. Um, oh. went to my school. Christopher <laughs> <the> <again. laughs>
2: Went to my school, Christopher Isherwood, uh, or I went to his school, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but can I ask, uh, at this point, um, do you ever have to turn books away, <laughs> with um, the, just for lack of space, or perhaps lack of? Association with cricket, or even possibly just possibly on literary merit. Um, we d- we don't turn anything away purely on literary
0: me- merit. We do turn books away on lack of cricket content, and we ha- we have to make a judgment whether a book with limited cricket content has enough to justify its place in our library because we have limited space. The collection, as you say, is growing by um, several hundred volumes every year, but the space we use isn't, and we have to be quite creative on how we use the space. So. We've been quite strict about not acquiring duplicates, which is the main reason we turn books away these days, because we already have them and we can't afford to house another copy. Um, we're still grateful for any um, donations that were offered, but we do ask people to send us a list of what they have. Quite often, um, somebody's parent has died and they've left uh, several boxes of cricket books in the attic and they don't know what to do with them. So they, they come to us. Maybe we'd like them. We always like to see a list because, surprisingly enough, it happens quite often that even with mass market publications, we've missed out on something in the past or our existing copy has got damaged through overuse. So sometimes we, we do pick up two or three from these lists, but in the majority of cases, um, we'll, we'll say thank you, but no thanks. And we'll, we'll direct them somewhere else, perhaps to one of the second-hand booksellers in, in, in the cricketing trade. But other than that, the, I think the only time I've ever turned away a new pub- publication that was offered to us as a donation was because it had no cricket content whatsoever and why the author had wanted to donate it to us, I don't know.
2: Neil, you've added a, a title of your own to the, to the book collection, haven't you? You wrote about the 1988 summer in English test cricket, which is a very, a very bleak one. What made you write about it? What made you think, decide to write a book about it? I was approached by Amberley Publishing, um,
0: who I think were aware of my writing for MCC magazine and in a a few other cricketing publications. Um, I I think they were looking initially for the the big Lord's Book of Lords, but that's been done several times before. um, And I I didn't think there was any particular interest in revisiting that. So I said, well, can you give me a, a couple of weeks to come up with another idea and get back to you? And by pure coincidence, I was doing some research on another matter that day, and I I was going through uh, a copy of The Cricketer from 1981, I think it was. And Peter May had just taken over as chairman of selectors, and he'd just picked his first ever team, the team that toured India in 81-82, and he'd chosen Keith Fletcher as his captain. And Fletcher at the time was 36 or 37 years of age. He hadn't played test cricket for seven years. And Christopher Martin Jenkins he was interviewing Peter May, quite reasonably asked him, is this a long-term appointment? And Peter May's response was, of course, there's no point chopping and changing. And I immediately thought, hang on, I remember the summer of 1988, which was Peter May's last as chairman of selectors. I remember we had four captains in one summer and well over 20 players in in one test series. Um, How on earth do you get from saying there's no point chopping and changing to the the point where he ended with four captains in one summer.
1: Can you rem- remind us of the gruesome details? The previous winter, of course, had been the Gatting series when um, in Pakistan, which was a complete disaster, and that uh, that was the apéritif for. Was it the West Indies who came to tour in the eighty-eight? I tried It to was remember. indeed, yes.
0: Um, yeah. The the very last team you want to be facing when when you're in. Chaos as, as a team,
1: really, who was Certainly the first in captain days. in that series?
0: Um, it was Mike Gatting who started off that series, um, but you're quite right to to actually start the story the previous winter because in fact, even the previous summer, when Pakistan had toured England, there'd been a great deal of bad feeling between the two teams. Um, the Pakistanis had complained about the umpiring of David Constance, not mm-hmm. for the first time and 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 that really fed into the the bad atmosphere when England visited Pakistan at the start of the, the following winter. There was, of course, the famous argument on the field between Gatting and Shakur Rana, um, but there were other elements as well, including Chris Broad refusing to leave the pitch when he'd been given out, and Graham Gooch, his batting partner at the time, having to persuade him to, to go. And even when the England team later went on to Australia and New Zealand, um, Broad, when he was dismissed in Sydney in the bicentenary test, knocked his his wickets over with his bat um, and was fined for that. There were reports of bad behaviour, Graham Dilley swearing very loudly when um, decisions went against him in New Zealand. And all at the same time, Ian Botham was in court for assault on an airplane while he was playing for Queensland in Australia. So there was a big story about discipline among England cricketers on and off the field Mm. that winter. And there were stern warnings issued at the start of the summer of 1988 about what would follow if England players did not behave themselves. So, of course, the first thing you get after England credited, they won the Texaco Trophy one-day series 3-0 against the West Indies under Gatting's captaincy. And then they drew the first test match at Trent Bridge, which it was the first time they'd avoided defeat against the West Indies in a test match for God knows how long. But then the tabloid story breaks about Mike Gatting being in his hotel room with a barmaid, on one night of, of the match. And it's a huge tabloid scandal. Um, I investigated and um, actually spoke to the barmaid and it was it was a tabloid fist-up, which she had no part in. It was not Gatting's fault either. Now he'd been a bit naive, but he certainly didn't do anything dreadfully wrong. Um, but it was- no, I ref- always
1: felt, I felt terribly sympathetic to Gatting at that time. He was remember. very,
0: very badly yep. used, I, I think, by the media in particular at the time. and. Probably didn't receive the resp- support from the authorities that he should have done.
1: I remember uh, Ted Dexter, when he was chairman of Selectors, being asked at a press conference, I think he took over after he was asked, what, what is, What's your policy on women? And he said, Well, I hope they're going to be pretty.
2: <laughs> oh. Oh, he wouldn't get away with that now, either. I, know he wouldn't. <laughs> I don't think he would. No, <laughs> no chance. No chance. No. Anyway, back to, uh, back to 1988. Mike Gatti. Yes. Yeah.
0: So Gatting was interestingly he was never actually sacked as England captain he was merely suspended for the next match which was the last he'd been appointed for two matches so when he missed the second test came back for the third he'd his term of captaincy had been expired had expired so they were going to choose a new captain anyway and they simply decided not to the Test and County Cricket Board decided not to um, appoint Gatting again. They went for John Embury. And then after two lost tests, uh, they were going to Headingley and they decided to go for Chris Cowdery, who'd done very well with Kent Mm. that summer. And then Cowdery got injured for the final test match. And Graham Gooch came in for that one. And it even went beyond that because Gooch was selected as captain for the planned tour of India the following winter.
2: Mm.
0: And um, he was on a United Nations blacklist for his connections with South Africa at the time. Um, So the Indians objected to his presence on the team and the fact that about half of the other players on the team were also blacklisted. Um, So the tour never took place. And then we went into the the following summer, which was just as chaotic. Um, Gooch wasn't captain. Um, Ted Dexter initially wanted to appoint Gatting, but that was vetoed again. So he went for David Gower Um, and that didn't work out terribly well. England were thumped quite badly in 1989 and used an equal number of players. I think if you, were an, if you were a reasonable county cricketer in those two summers and you didn't get an England call, you must have felt pretty hard done by.
2: Cowdery was Peter May's grandson, wasn't he? A g- godson, godson, I mean, sir, godson, sir. godson. Godson, I should have said. Yeah.
0: Mm. A, a
2: lot's made of that, but they weren't particularly close. Okay.
0: Um, not from what Chris Cowdery told me anyway. Um, he, was, he was a very good interviewee, a, a lo- lovely chap, and he was very, very helpful. Oh, yes. In fact, I'm grateful to all the captains for, for their help with me.
1: And there was a lovely romance, I have to say, about Chris Cowdery becoming England captain. And Colin mm. Cowdery was so nice about it, about his first test in, Do you remember he was listening to, it was in India, wasn't it, Chris Cowdery? Oh, when he the first, first played on. in it, yes. Yeah, and Colin was driving in driving and co- Chris Cowdery, was his son, was brought on to bowl. And c- c- Colin Cowdery promptly crashed the car because <laughs> he was so excited. I thought I thought he, yeah. I remember listening to an interview given by the late Lord um, Cowdery about that, and I your heart warmed to him. He I think it, I think
2: it was reckon, it was a defense in court wasn't it <laughs> I, I think it was I think he I, I certainly think he gone off yes got didn't, didn't have any penalty for it, it wasn't quite right too understandable
1: mm. so your book about the 1988 cricket tour this was fact or fiction
0: it was fact it's um, it's a work of history in essence recent history taken from interviews with, with some of the principal characters involved and from contemporary newspaper reports. So, And s- some surviving uh, television footage. There you can find clips from the test matches on, uh, on YouTube and, and places like that. So it's, it was interesting to actually see some clips of the cricket and see if it matched my recollections and, and how well it matched the descriptions that were used by the, the reporters of the day. And I have to say, actually, it was it was tremendously useful being able to use the uh, the scoring records of Bill Frindle, uh, which was so detailed you could almost see a match coming to life in front of your very yes, eyes. Of course.
1: What about the uh, the Lord's archive? I mean, the the tests those tour reports must have been quite made quite <laughs> uh, quite interesting reading.
0: They do, they do. It's it's a mixed picture actually. It's um. It's an unfortunate fact that there are gaps in the archive collection. Um, in some, For some tours, this, this isn't just relating to tours, by the way, it's, it's across the board. We've got a, a record of, of MCC business that covers everything from finance and catering, ground development, to tours. And tours are, are probably the most used part by researchers. And for some tours, we have pretty much comprehensive records of, of their organisation and their aftermath. So you'll get everything like um, planning of the itinerary, financial negotiations with the host board, arrangements for, for travel and accommodation, insurance, player contract, player medicals, right through to the, the scorebooks, the cash books that were kept for accounts during the tour, and the the tour manager and captain's reports at the end of it. Um, for, for some tours, it's a very different picture. In some cases, we have nothing at all. I think that's um, the West Indies tour, fifty-three, the one where Fred Truman got into hot water over some off-field misbehaviour. Mm-hmm. We have nothing at all for that. So when Chris Waters was writing his recent biography of, of Fred Truman, I was sadly unable to, to assist but when him. When you
1: say there's nothing at all, the same thing happened to me when I was researching the Dolivera, my book on Basil Dolivera. And I remember the, your, one of your predecessors telling me very sadly that there were no records of the 68 tour which struck me as being dubious uh and so there were no records of the 54 tour when fred got into trouble is this a sort of uh, incompetence or are we looking at something else
0: i, I mean that there are some records of, of 68 i mean for example i think a lot's been made of the fact that there are no minutes for the um the selection meeting at which basil Oliveira was initially excluded. But we do have a record of the subsequent meeting at which Dolavira was selected following the withdrawal of Tom Cartwright. Mm. But it's, a, it's actually not usual for us to have that sort of written record of a selection meeting. And it doesn't really tell us very much anyway. Um, if I can just explain the, the structure of how these things worked in those days, the, there would have been a, a selection committee which reported to the subcommittee put together for that tour. So in the Dolovera case, it was the South Africa tour subcommittee, which in turn reported to the cricket committee, which in turn reported to the main MCC committee. So it's a, a committee and subcommittee overload, each reporting to the next one up the chain. So what, what we have sometimes in um, the tour subcommittee papers are reports of a selection meeting, but these never give us detailed records of of who said what, who proposed what, how the team was put together. They are simply records, you know, written record of the decision that was made. In some cases, you do get a record of players turning down an invitation to tour because they had other commitments or perhaps because they were injured. Um, But we we never have anything that reveals what the thought process was in terms of... I
1: was thinking more that, you know, for instance... You had a wonderful record of the fifty-six DB ta- cars tour to Pakistan yeah. of the A team to Pakistan, which the, you were very generous. You, I think it was you who gave me the file when I was writing the, doing my rep- account of that, and it was an incredibly full file, full of the after the end, which included all of the details uh, about the uh, episode when the a lot of the players got together and kidnapped. Idris Beg, the umpire, mm. and what was most um, and led to an international incident, of course, and what was most uh, revealing were these very moving, eloquent letters written by Geoffrey Hard, the tour manager, mm. a lovely man, who was there. He was in Peshawar, you know, it was well before the days of really international phone calls, let alone. Uh, uh, and he was every day. He wrote a a very detailed airmail letter, which was given to the the British uh, diplomatic presence there and they got whiskey back to london giving his account of events and and that was for somebody writing a history it was fabulous material
0: yeah if if you look if you're lucky enough to to be researching a period that we have comprehensive documentation for then you've really got a huge amount of help but it's it's a mixed picture i'm afraid as i said some tours we have nothing for some tools we have comprehensive body
1: line what have you got for body that? that, well, that body, lines,
0: obviously... body lines pretty good in some respects although um a, a lot a lot of the paperwork relating to the dispute that blew up between the two boards i think actually remained in the hands of the people involved rather than making its way into the club's files for example gubby allen's paperwork which i think was quite detailed on this mm. um after his death um, it was all sold by his family to the University of New South Wales. So it's all in Sydney now. It is accessible, but it's it's not with us. Um, and I think one thing you have to bear in mind when you're trying to find your way through at the MCC archive in cases like this is at the time we did not have an archive. We had filing. And so sometimes you'll find that the only place you've got paperwork relating to a, a given tour is actually in the paperwork for the next tour to that particular destination, because they they referred back to the arrangements made for the previous tour when they were planning the next one. So you, you can see from this that files weren't archived. They were kept because they were of continuing use, and sometimes they were used, and sometimes after that use, they weren't put back in their original position, which causes havoc for archivists and for historians. And I think it's largely been a matter of chance whether items have survived, simply because there was no archiving procedure, and really that was the case right up until we acquired an archive space in 2006. After which processes have have been put in place. We now make sure every department around the ground knows that, you know, if you've got items that you no longer have a use for in your office, you know, let let the archive uh, manager have a look at them first before you actually decide to dispose of them. That way we can keep the institutional memory of, of the club going and we can provide a resource for future historians. But sadly those processes weren't in place in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and so it's a sad fact that a lot of material has been lost.
1: But a lot of it's still there. I, 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 was, I can't say how grateful I've been over the years to to you and your colleagues,
0: I mean, it, it, it's a great benefit to us actually to to have people rooting around in the archives and digging out stories. Because it's one thing to catalogue and to have an idea of what's in there, but actually to to interpret what's in there and draw out the stories that are hidden within the, the original material, that's a whole other level of knowledge. And it really does us a great deal of, of benefit to to have people researching with our in our archives as well.
2: New York. it's been a wonderful conversation. I wish we had another hour or even even two to go through even more about the collections and the library and the archive. Um, they've all three been a wonderful resource for the the um, the whole world of cricket. If I may say so, the Home Office's loss was um, cricket's gain. Thank you very, very much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very
0: much, gentlemen. Um, I hope to talk to you again in person
2: soon.
1: Absolutely. I hope seeing you in person... Uh, So thank you so much, uh, Neil. And from me, Peter O'Bourne in Wiltshire, it's goodbye.
2: And from me, uh, Richard Heller in Shropshire, it's also goodbye.